this is Season 5 of The Score, the Teen Roping Journal's podcast where we cover the roping industry from top to bottom. This is where the teen roping world talks. We talk through tough subjects, we talk big wins, and we talk real issues affecting the community. I'm your host and editor of the Teen Roping Journal, Chelsea Schaefer. Are you ready to instill the spirit of excellence? Four-time world champion and smarty founder, Alan Bach, knows that in order to be a pro, you have to train like a pro. Keeping the roper's needs in mind, Smarty offers an extensive line of training products for ropers of all levels and disciplines. If you need it, we have it, including a complete saddle and apparel line to keep you and your horse in style going down the road. For more information on products, training camps, or our Smarty Young Pro incentives, you can follow us on our social media pages or you can check out SmartyRoping.com. If it's not a Smarty, it's just a dummy. Hey Ropers, by the time you listen to this episode of The Short Score, I have already recorded this episode. I recorded it on a Friday afternoon as one of my last tasks for the Team Roping Journal. Yep, I just admitted it. This is one of my last items to do for the brand, and that is recording and bringing you guys the Short Score Podcast, which is brought to you by Smarty this week. I know, usually a Short Score Podcast is brought to you with all the happenings that happened over the weekend right before the podcast, which for this episode, it would have been Who Won the American, and a few other news updates from the team roping industry. But don't worry, I'm sure the Team Repping Journal crew has you covered. You can head on over to teamreppingjournal.com or all of their social media pages because I'm sure they're going to have news up about who won the American and more Team Repping Industry news. So, this is my official announcement of my last and final episode as the host of the Short Score and co-host of the Score podcast. You'll hear my voice once more on Saturday, March 12th in the episode introducing a new roping.com roping tip. The podcast will continue with host Chelsea Schaefer, so you'll have a familiar voice there. Don't be left astray. The short score was branched off from the score to bring team ropers and the industry weekly news updates about the sport we have all grown to love, and I was so happy, and still am so happy, that I've been a part of this journey. Throughout my career, I have been blessed to learn from some of the best in the industry. This industry has helped me grow as an individual, both in life and in my career. As a little intern, still in college with the magazine, then graduating and becoming a full-time employee, I am so thrilled that Chelsea Schaefer and the crew at Team Roping Journal took the leap of faith to hire on a little fresh girl out of college to join the team and help build this brand. This isn't a goodbye forever. I'm still going to be involved in the industry, so you'll see me around at jackpots, and I'm still going to be involved just taking a different venture in my life. I'm going to leave you with a few things. I want everyone to know that I love this journey, and I hope everyone takes the risk and follows their dreams because you don't know what's going to come from it. And with that being said, on this episode of The Short Score, I'm going to leave you guys five of my favorite episodes of The Score. It was hard to pick my top five, but these are the five that I came up with. And you're going to listen to little clips. So if you like these clips I provided, you can go ahead and go to anywhere you listen to podcasts at and check out these episodes for yourself if you missed it. To start off my top five favorite clips, we're going to go back to season one 
with an episode with Corey Koontz. I'm always fascinated by, we know you've had 30 years in the PRCA almost of experience with horses, but before that, I mean, did you start out as just some punk kid that could get by on any colt and just needed transportation, or did you, did you grow up, how did you grow up, or your parents horse trainers, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I grew up in the feedlot. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was a bareback rider and had never roped and then kind of started messing around roping. Um, and so by the time I was a kid, he was working, managing a feedlot and I worked in the feedlot. Mm-hmm. So I did feel like I had a lot of ability and I learned how to rope on a lot of different kind of horses, but I also learned how to ride colts and I learned how to you know I didn't learn like from many very good horse trainers or Mm -hmm. anything but there were some just feedlot cowboys that worked at the feedlot where I grew up that uh, broke colts and so I learned how to do some of that and and um, you know making them turn around making them move off your feet make you know just kind of the basic things and then along you know, I, and I had several pretty good horses kind of through my high school years. Did you high school rodeo? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I junior rodeoed in the AJRA in Texas, mm-hmm. and I roped with Larry D. Guy, mm-hmm. and I roped with, you know. Um, and then I got into high school, and um, the horse that I, I had a young horse that was only four years old that I had won the uh, world junior championship deal and used to be in Allen Oklahoma Mm -hmm. and that was the big deal and I won that and um, then that horse got crippled and I had to put him down he had an avicular real bad and just and so after that I was kind of a foot and Twister Kane let me ride one of his horses for a little while and then Twister said hey I saw a horse that uh, a little dun horse that looked pretty cool that a guy named Flynn Ferris has and he wants to sell him because Flynn and Mike Macy were roping together and they're trying to make the NFR and this horse is just a colt and he's got some ability but he just needs rid of him so I go try the horse and roped really good on him and I think he I can't remember what Flynn even priced him at but just being a high school kid I had 3500 bucks that I could spend on a horse so Mm -hmm. I wrote out the check and me and my mom went to try this little dun horse named Iceman. I rode the horse, loved him. Uh, Flynn asked if I was, you know, do you want to buy him? I handed him the check and it was folded <laughs> and I said, that's all I got. You can either take it or I would love to have him, but that's all I got. Mm-hmm. He looked at it and he gasped and he just, oh, you gotta be kidding me and just kicking rocks and just, you know, and then he ended up saying you you know what I need the money I'll take it and then that's where I, I high school rodeoed on Iceman I college rodeoed on Iceman went to uh, two college national finals on him I started pro rodeoing roping with Rube Woolsey and just that's where mm-hmm. took off with Iceman mm-hmm. and and he I wanted to I, I wanted to rope really aggressive and throw fast, and that horse let me do whatever I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I won a ton of stuff. I made the NFR on him. Um, 
92 was my first year and then I won the George Straits, I won the BFIs, I won all of those different things on him and he just always worked. Did you know, he have a learning curve? Like, uh, his learning curve was probably about the same as mine. Yeah. At the time I was just a, that punk kid mm -hmm. that I knew how to ride and I knew what a horse was kind of supposed to do but I didn't always, I, I had a t-shirt that uh, said on the front, dare to be different. Mm -hmm. And I kind of lived by that. <laughs> and so even though the best guys in the world at that time were Clay Cooper, Alan Bach, Bobby Harris, um, you know, and then looking back like at Leo Camarillo and the guys that were the very best, they were catchers. Mm -hmm. They made sure they caught two feet every time. And they didn't necessarily take the, the high-risk shot. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I took, I felt like I took a little bit from each one of those guys, but then I incorporated it in, into me and wanting to be very aggressive with where I throw, but catch all of them, which I guess everyone kind of sets out to be yeah. that way. But it, you know, I got to where I was a first and second hop roper and the way we used to rope was, I would call it more of a spot roper because my guys, the, all the best guys that I roped with. You're good, we can edit it. <laughs> all the best guys I roped with ran to a certain spot. Their horses made a move. It set the steer up and I would throw in the same spot every time, no matter what. And so that kind of built me into who I was, whether it was Rube, Matt Tyler, Steve Purcella, Brett Boatwright, um, shoot, I, Daniel Green. I go on and on. I've roped with some great, great guys through the years. And then as heading started evolving and Speedy came along and guys started reaching further and kind of taking a hold of the steer yeah. less and kind of almost rounding the corner out, um, then there was a transition for me. Like I had to change some things of how I did it because at the time, for a long time, I needed a switch. Mm -hmm. I needed that steer to hit out, load up, and then take a good hop. Mm -hmm. Well, then it changed and that was kind of around the time I was roping with David Key and he's trying to keep his horses moving forward. He's trying to kind of make more of a round corner and man, that didn't fit me very good. Mm -hmm. And it was hard for me to change, but through a two or three year period there, um, and I missed the NFR, you know, two mm -hmm. or three times going through this learning curve. And now I feel like I've come out the other side. I feel like really no matter what the steer does, I still like it when a steer switches. Mm -hmm. It gives me a spot to ride into. It gives me a, a definite corner, but I also, feel like now I can rope the steer even if he runs around the corner or if it's round or whatever happens just by keeping my momentum on my swing, keeping my horse moving through the turn and reading what my partner's going to do and then come up with two feet. And so there's definitely a, a change through time and, um, you know, that's yeah present time now. That's yeah. where we're at. When you're having trouble with something in your roping or your horses right now, who do you call? Uh, you know, I really don't have anyone. No? You know, I've, through the years, me and Clay Cooper have been really good friends, and 
there's times where I might call Clay and talk to him and or I might even just see him somewhere and him you know it's kind of hard to get anything out of Clay sometimes (laughs) but there were times where he might just come up and and give me some advice without Mm -hmm. me even asking just you know maybe it was an angle on my swing maybe it was something that I just wasn't Mm -hmm. thinking and wasn't aware of and uh but I don't really have anyone that I uh I'm kind of a loner I don't mind being by myself Mm -hmm. I don't mind traveling by myself I don't need a lot of cronies around me or anybody (laughs) telling me that I'm doing great or not or whatever and so I really don't have anybody that I just talk to all the time or I go to uh, if I'm struggling a little bit I watch my own videos a lot Mm -hmm. and um, and I'll watch other guys videos and I'll try to break it down to the point where I realize what I'm doing and how to move through it how to get through it and how to do a better job and then there's just no really replacement for just working hard at it yeah and so I really don't have that person I call but (laughs) if you at this level how much uh help are other guys to one another or like are there secrets that guys want to keep for themselves like if if Jade's working on something is that Jade's secret or if if Clay's working on something does he does he always share everything how forthcoming are people I I think all the guys I'm buddies with there's really the only time I think anybody would kind of keep a secret is if they don't know if it actually works or not. <laughs> you know, they might be trying something and it's like, not really sure 100% if I really truly am going to count on this, mm-hmm. and I'm, but I'm going to keep working at it. Um, I've, I lived with Jade for a couple of years, and we roped together a lot, and we roped in the practice pen a lot, and um, there is that hunger and he has that hunger to be better than anyone's ever been and so I think he is constantly kind of trying some new stuff and I'm old school enough that my advice to him was hey don't try to reinvent the wheel Mm -hmm. there's a certain way it works and you do that really 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 good just keep doing that you know and so there's a certain amount of different guys minds are different and jade has a real intricate way of thinking about team roping and how it all works and anybody that knows him would know that um and he's not one to go out and you know he would share stuff with me but that was maybe as far as it went maybe a few other good friends that he trusted but as far as I think there's a a real happy medium with changing with the times and doing what you need to do to win, but not overdoing anything to the point where you cause more problems. Yeah. And so there's a real uh, a real happy medium in there with uh, finding your niche and finding what works for you. Ride good, set the shot up, heal the steer keep it as simple as possible Mm -hmm. so but they're you know I say keep it as simple as possible and we could sit here for two hours and I could break down healing to the point where you're like golly (laughs) just 
I was better off before I ever heard anything you said. So, you know, it it takes a combination, I think. Yeah. Huh. What, um, you said ride good. What does riding good mean to you? What, how? Um, riding good to me is doing what your horse needs to make him the best he can be. Um, I think it's being balanced. It's being, uh, you know, using your left hand and your feet at the same time to position your horse so that you set up your shot so that you can make your shot and you do it in a way that your horse wants to keep working for you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's building confidence. I've always felt like I build confidence in my horses and they want to do good for me. They want to work for me. And I, you know, some people might look at me like, you know what, they're a tool. You you use your horse and when you've used him up, then you get another one. Mm-hmm. And I And I somewhat agree with that to a certain extent, but I've had some horses for a long time that I felt like would die for me, mm-hmm. you know. And even though me and Remix have been through it, man, if that if I needed to jump that horse in the middle of a river mm-hmm. or he spooks at trash cans all the time. <laughs> but if I make him, he would get in the trash can for me. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of a, a deal where riding good is a relationship with my horse it's uh being consistent with how i ride to set my shot up so that i build confidence in me and my horse Mm -hmm. and in my team with my partner and all of that working together so that you can do it more than one time in a row all right let's jump ahead to season two first off we're going to listen to a clip from the jackal story i love a good horse story and who doesn't love a good jackal story jim went to riding him everywhere because I was thinking when he bought him, you know, he was going to buy him kind of for the same reasons I did, you know, for the NFR or the George Strait or, you know, the littler setups in the wintertime. Well, then the next thing you know, Jim's riding him every steer that he runs. And he wins Cheyenne on him, which is the hardest rodeo probably on a horse that there is because the score is really long and uh, there's nowhere to go to the left. And so the healer has to really pretty much score with your header. And here's Jim on a 24-year-old heel horse and he wins the rodeo on him. So... That that seemed like to me like if you if you say there's ever a moment that like people realize or somebody realizes something, I feel like that was kind of the day where if anybody was out there that didn't really believe anything that people talked about about that horse, that was kind of the defining moment of like okay, we get it now. You know what I mean? Like because just because of the talk that you know people that you didn't hear talk about him, like bulldoggers were talking about him, calf rubbers were talking about him, and that was you know so for me that was kind of the day that everybody realized that like man this is the greatest hill horse probably of all time that win at cheyenne got jackal yet another trip back to vegas it would be his last there jackal carried cooper to two go round placings and a round 10 win that couldn't have been written any sweeter I've, i don't want to get myself away on this because and when jackal made his last run at the nfr i was the last team out that night and at the time, I didn't. I, I knew quite a bit about the situation, but I thought that I had to catch to win the world, or I knew I had to catch to win the average, and I wanted to do that. And then obviously we'd win the world too. So not a time to probably not be thinking about that. And when they go, Boyd Paul Hamus was only talking about him. 
Like, I'm sure he did announce their names, but if he did, I didn't hear it. And he just goes to rattling off all these stats about Jackal. And because there was kind of this joke between, like, a few of us that we just thought that he was going to drop dead. Like, we didn't think he was going to get old and have to retire. Like, we thought he was going to be exactly how he was, and one day, just like Walt did, like, he's just going to drop dead. And so the same exact type of feeling I had when I bought him or the reason I wanted to buy him, I had the same exact reel of a feeling when he's talking. Because you can't hear hardly anything back there. And I'm in a spot where you really can't hear anything. And I can hear everything he's saying all of a sudden. And all I could think about is like, he's going to drop dead. He's going to die when he gets out the back end. Like, and, I, and I'm truly believing that. So I'm thinking, like, I don't care what's going on. I'm like, somebody's got to get back there. Like, he's going to die. That's all I'm thinking about. And so then they go and they're 4-1 and win in the day money. And at the time, the situation that the people were in after him, like, they're going to win the day money. And I know that. So I'm like, wow, like, last round, he's winning it. You're going to win it. I'm like, he's going to die. Like, he's going to die. So <laughs> that was kind of a hard moment for me because I really didn't think it was going to happen. I was worried. I was really worried. Which, see, I mean, it sounds weird to say it even now. Like, I, I remember thinking then it seemed weird that, like, I'm that worried about it when it hasn't even happened. But just the everything that we had talked about and how we thought it was going to go down, and now all of a sudden it probably is his last NFR. And, of course, winning the day money, and I'm just like, I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen tonight. Like, if he's going to go down like we think he is, tonight's the night is, is what I was thinking. And... The, the weird part to me is that I thought all, I mean, I thought so many things in a decent amount of, or not very much time, and now I'm up all of a sudden, and I'm, I'm not ready. Like, now they're opening the gate, yelling at me to get in the box, and I'm, like, trying to get my rope ready, because I was literally just sitting there, having my rope on my horn, and I'm just trying to look kind of down towards the back end, trying to see if I can see, and... Because the 10th round, the team that wins the go-round doesn't take the victory lap. The average winners do. And so they don't wait really right there where they do, if, like, you know, on the other nine nights if you win the round. So I'm, like, bending down, trying to look up the tunnel as far as I can see. Can't see nothing. Like, I'm thinking there'll be a herd of people running down there if he, if he dies when he gets out the back end. So, I mean, I feel, I feel like an idiot saying all this, but, I mean, might as well tell the truth, I guess. And that's really what I was thinking. So, uh, I guess good to know that he didn't once I got out the back but so that was a relief uh but I've never really told anybody that like exactly what I was thinking at that moment because I mean now I guess it's enough time that I didn't want my partner to know what I was thinking at the time because I doubt I'm gonna say he wasn't thinking about that uh but I got through it we caught and no harm no foul but even after the run like I mean, everything that happened and what I should have been thinking, I was still thinking about that. So I didn't really get to, I mean, I did enjoy the moment, but not in the actual moment as much as I would have on, say, a normal day. So that was, that was kind of, I guess that was the moment for me that I realized how much I actually did care about that horse, you know, so. It was a little bit, you know, it dang sure tug at your heart a little bit to see in the 10th go-round, and it's not an easy go-round, him to just get up around one and just pull back and win the, I think they won the round in the very last round that 
that he was ever competed on there. And so that's a, that was a pretty cool deal, pretty good way to finish off a, a great career. Nobody doubts that there was something in Jackal, call it heart, grit, or God-given ability, that made him the legend that he was. He had to have heart because, you know, he got to the point, there's no telling how many miles that horse went. You know, because there was a stretch when Michael Jones had him that that was the only horse he had, and he rode him everywhere. And so the miles, you know, the, the steers he had run on him, he, if he didn't have heart, he wouldn't have made it half the time that he did. Following that from season two, again, I love a good horse story, a good heel horse story. If I might add, we're going to listen to a clip from Patrick Smith's Amigo. Definitely hard to replace a horse like that. I don't know that he'll ever be replaced. I have people ask me all the time, you know, which one was better, Jaws or Amigo? And I have to go with Amigo as great as Jaws was. Everybody loved Jaws. He was awesome. I loved him. But just the longevity that Amigo's had, um, the amount of things that I've been able to do on him. And like I said, his, there wasn't a scenario that, in my opinion, he wasn't the best at. Um, it didn't matter if it was short score, long score, um, practicing, whatever I wanted him to do. He was awesome at it. I can't speak highly enough of him. Yeah, even Trevor Brazil can catch two feet on him. That's for sure. That is, that's the reason we painted him on the wall. It had nothing to do with any more than that. Trevor could catch on him. Man, he is amazing. So Trevor has ridden him several times at the timed event. He's won the timed event so many times. I don't even know how many times it had to do with Amigo, but I do recall one time that I tried to get him to ride Amigo there. And he's like, no, I'm going to ride this horse here. And he... Uh, he missed riding that other horse. He wouldn't have missed on Amigo. And then he lost his rope on this other horse too, and he wouldn't have done that on Amigo either. So he has ridden him several times there. Um, I know if he was sitting here, he would uh, attribute a lot of you know good things to Amigo and uh, his success as far as the timed event goes, and especially as far as our team roping career goes. I know that he would have a lot of good things to say about Amigo. He loves him on the grass. He talks about him at Pendleton, you know, and I won Pendleton on him. He's one of the only horses I've ever seen that slides as much as he slides, but you can ride him on the grass and he just knows how to move his feet, man. He's a, he really is a special animal. I've actually let my dad heal some on him in the last couple of years. Um, my very first year that I let my dad run on him, and my dad's a number four healer that hadn't, doesn't rope very much and didn't even start roping until he was over 50 years old. So I let him run four steers on Amigo one day. And he runs the first two steers, catches two feet both times and dallies and goes, man, no wonder you've done good. This is, I had no idea. I thought you were better than you were. This is easy. So uh, he just was talking about how, you know, what a difference it really does make. He's like, I had no idea. But my kids have ridden him. Eli, my little boy, he's five years old. I let him ride him around. I will tell you a little funny story about him. You have to be careful with him because he is super gentle. Um, easy to be around. I mean, kids can go jump on him bareback. It doesn't matter. But man, when you get in the arena and you get boot him up and cinch him up, he's a, he's a victory lap and a warm up. Crazy. I'm talking about this horse is crazy. I look like I'm two handed reins. I'm sure that you guys, some of you've probably seen it or witnessed it. Trevor's always made fun of it, but I mean, he looks like a runaway when you go into a victory lap or a, uh, you know, any kind of a warm-up where I'm going to blow him out a little bit and get some speed. He goes crazy. So my brother brought his stepsons over here one day. One of them is seven years old, and I'm letting him ride my horse around. One of the guys that was helping me that day 
is getting Amigo ready for me. Well, this kid's on him. I'm roping, not really paying attention. He puts his boots on him, cinches him up a little bit. And <laughs> this little kid is sitting at the back of the arena. I run a steer on this other horse and Dally, and all I see is a blur go by. And I turn and look. This kid has never ridden horses. I mean, he's only been on one horse in his life. And he looks like Whiplash the monkey, both hands on the saddle horn, hunched over the saddle. How he stays on him, I don't know. But Amigo makes a full lap around the arena as fast as he can possibly go. And I'm just in panic mode, you know, thinking this kid's fixing to hit the fence or go flying. He hangs on, and Amigo goes to the very end of the arena, turns, and I'm thinking, please stop, please stop. He's just head down, headed right back at me. Uh, but really cool. The kid, kid stays on. I lope in front of Amigo, and I just holler woe to him, and he does. He just stops and rides right next to me, and this kid's eyes are bugged out of his head. Not crying, nothing, smiling. He's like, man, that was fun. <laughs> but uh, definitely means business when you get in the arena, so super gentle. I want my kids to ride him, but they need to learn to be careful because he's still got some fire, for sure. This industry continues to blow me away, especially being able to meet and interview an icon, an awesome musician and artist in Cody Johnson. Enjoy this interview from season four of The Score. It's so crazy to look at you guys in your industry, in the music yeah. industry, and how much you guys do go and how much you are putting out there for your fans. And it's mind-boggling. Well, like, and it's different for us, too. Like, in my camp, every, every night before we go on stage, I tell mm -hmm. my guys, don't leave anything behind. Like, mm -hmm. just make, just play it like it's your last show because you never know. Mm -hmm. It could be your last show. Yeah. And we never airmail it in. It's always 100%. When you see me on stage, like, and you see the sweat, mm -hmm. and you, even if you see me breaking the tears over stuff, that's real. Uh -huh. You know, and I'm, it, that's draining. It's draining on a person. And uh, I do miss it. I have mm -hmm. missed very much, like, when we had our off time. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was nights I'd stare at pictures of, you know, 12,000 people in a crowd and just think, God, I miss it. I miss yeah. them. I want to be there, but everything happens for a reason, and God's a lot smarter than I am, so I'm just going to keep riding this. <laughs> Definitely. And, it, you know, you say you miss it. You miss you miss your fans and the crowd. What was it like, I guess, looking back, maybe your very first show, what was it like walking up on stage? Do you remember, like, that feeling? Well, I, there's a reason I don't give uh, kids in the industry advice is because mm -hmm. I skipped my first college final to go play my first gig. <clears throat> and I just said college is not for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I just feel like I got a calling, and I went and played for a hundred bucks, and it was an acoustic night at some bar, mm -hmm. and it was just. I felt like I was on top of the world. And then you fast forward to Houston Rodeo coming mm -hmm. in the first time. I mean, my legs were shaking like I was back bull riding. <laughs> and then you know, a little further down the line, <clears throat> we played in Gillette Stadium for uh, eighty-five thousand people with George Strait, mm -hmm. and it didn't seem like it was a big deal. It just you know, I've, I've looked back and seen the progression of the desensitizing of. Mm -hmm. Man, it just kind of is what I do, mm -hmm. you know. And but that feeling that you get, just I can't describe it. Yeah. it. There's not a there's not a drug on the planet. I'm sure of it that that comes close to it. Mm -hmm. It's just that when you give when you give yourself to those people, and then they give back to you, that energy is just something you can't replace. I mean, that's why most of the nights when I walk back in the bus, I'm drenched with sweat uh -huh. and I'm panting, you know. Yeah. yeah but. I love it. There's nothing I'd change about it. <laughs> That's awesome. And I know you say obviously you started in the music industry at a young age. Um, 
let's talk about like your your roping background, your rodeo background. What you know, when did you kind of get into that that industry? So my my sophomore year of high school, I wanted to start riding bulls, mm-hmm. and I, I rode through high school, rode a little bit out of high school, and I was good enough to win a buckle or two. Mm-hmm. You know, I. I I was good enough, but I wasn't. I did, I did, that's not where I, my talent was, and I didn't have any physical direction back then. Like now, I mean, I do. I work out three or four times a week. Doug mm-hmm. Champion with Champion Fitness is my trainer, and okay. I do yoga and all kinds. Of, I mean, like if I would have had that kind of drive then, mm-hmm. I probably could have been more successful. But I was also young and stupid too. I, I thought I was. I thought I was Clint Eastwood when I was eighteen, and uh, my wife says sometimes I still do. Uh, but so when it fizzled out, you know, I focused so hard on music, but I knew that I had one, I just had to be connected to rodeo. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I would rope with my friends and no direction, no really, nobody telling me you ought to do this, you ought to mm-hmm. change this. It was just roping for fun. Yeah. And uh, cutting horses became a passion. I rode cutting okay. horses for a little while and I love it. I mm-hmm. just, I enjoy roping more. Yeah. Um, and it, it's always just kind of been like a, it's always been in the background. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt that calling of like it should be in the forefront. So, mm-hmm. when, like I said, when we've had this time off, my wife and I just bought a ranch in Mas- Madisonville with, you know, arena and stalls. And okay. Just kind of making a life change because mm-hmm. my, my little girls are six and four. Okay. And it's my responsibility to introduce them to this. Yeah. You know, I'm a first generation rodeo cowboy in my family. There's no cowboys in my family. Mm-hmm. So I want to make that change in the cycle. That mm-hmm. way, you know, and, and I, they, they say about hunting, they say with little girls, you hunt with your daughter so you don't have to hunt for your daughter. <laughs> uh, and I figure as long as they're in the arena with me and mama, I mean, you know, you, there's a lot to be learned mm-hmm. on that dirt. There really is. Last but not least, this is one of my favorite interviews that I got to do. And that was in season four, interviewing NFR qualifier, Marty Yates. And, uh... I want to talk about it too. What's that horse you and uh, your aunt JJ? Yeah. What's that horse that you were riding? That doesn't JJ have it? Now? Oh yeah. Well, she did. That was a horse that uh, actually come from Ryan Jarrett, my traveling partner. Um, mm-hmm. I bought him and just kind of going to take him along, and he got pretty good. But he just was funny on the end of it uh, in the calf open. And then JJ, she she needed something kind of. She's she was going through kind of a little horse problem, and mm-hmm. she jumped on him, and it went amazing. Yeah. So she freaking took the world by storm. <laughs> she won everything on that horse and. He was older whenever I sold him. I think he was, I don't even remember, he's 21 maybe now. So he was dang sure, had, still had some age on him then. Mm-hmm. And she got some good years out of him. But he was dang sure good for her for quite a few years. Yeah, and I mean, J.J. is a winner. <laughs> yeah, so. she, she might just make a horse good. She just needs <laughs> them to leave off her hand decent. And she, as long as they get, get her kind of close, she's all right. Yeah, and how, you know, having J.J. in your corner, she's, I love just talking to J.J., hanging out with her, and I know... It's fun. I love watching her at the NFR when they scan over to her on the screen. She's always hooping and hollering. Oh, yeah. um, you know, how, what's it like having JJ in she, your corner? She's nuts. It's awesome having, having her. I wouldn't want any. I mean, she's and and put it go a different way with it. She's the ultimate competitor too, mm-hmm. and she feels that way. Like she when she's sitting in the stands, it looks like to me. Yeah. She's loving it. She's wishing she was down there. But man, it's been awesome to have somebody like her behind me and pushing me my whole life I mean not just my career I mean she was there from the day I was born and um, she's just a winner in life really not just in rodeo I mean she she has a, a wonderful family Kaysen and Ricky and they shoot they Kaysen he's kind of getting into it now and mm-hmm. it's it's been cool for JJ to help him and now it's kind of hard for her because well now it's the ultimate deal for the record opers they yeah. get to go rodeo and she feels like she needs to be home with him but I, I think they're making it work and uh I don't know. I, she's she's helped me more than I can sit here and talk about. You know, mm-hmm. she's helped me with lots of things, but uh, she's incredible, and I, I appreciate her to be my aunt. You know. Yeah. 
Is it cool having her, like, you know, oh, getting to go down the road now? Absolutely, yeah, because <laughs> she calls me, and she's going to all the same places, and she asks me about, what are the kids, what's the start, yada, yada, yada. Which she's pretty intense. I don't know, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've talked to her a lot, but she, <laughs> she doesn't, uh, she might throw some uh, strange language out a little bit <laughs> most of the time, but uh, she, she's intense, and if you're down and out, I haven't been winning a whole lot, and it's mm-hmm. been kind of rough, and she's she's been positive the whole way. Which she, I mean, she's had great success out here, and mm-hmm. just like we all feared she would, but it's been nice to have her in my corner for sure. Definitely, definitely. And I want to step back, you know, um, you've talked about JJ's been there all your life. Mm-hmm. Um, let's kind of talk about where you came from and um, just your background story. Who's Marty Yates? Yeah, um, shoot, just uh, one of the first uh, rodeo guys in Stephenville, I guess you could say. <laughs> Everybody lives there now, but... They all ask if I just came from, uh, if I just go to school in Stephenville. Like, no, I was born and raised there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a completely different town. But no, I was born born and raised right there in Stephenville, and uh, had a great family behind me. Um, kind of started off a little a little bit different than most most kids. Probably my dad uh, died in a car wreck before I was born, and that kind of set us up mm-hmm. maybe to not have the best start, you know, for me and my mom, and then of course my grandma and and grandpa and everybody they stepped in and my dad's side of the family they mm-hmm. they've been awesome you know it's so I never I never went without you know I, I had everything I needed and I don't know I, I, I feel like I don't know my dad's with me all the time and uh, just blessed to get to do what I do mm-hmm. um, things happen for a reason um, I was blessed with the talent so I just I, 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 that's what I try to keep in my mind is just God give me this talent I'm going to use it mm-hmm. until uh, until the, another door opens. Yeah, and um, so your dad died before you were even born. Do you? I mean, obviously you've heard all the stories about him. Um, mm-hmm. He rodeoed. Oh, kind of. Yeah. Yep. What? What? Something that people always tell or used to tell you about him? Or? Uh, probably that he was such a people person, which is kind of strange because I'm not as outgoing as they act like <laughs> he he was. But they, I mean, everybody loved mm-hmm. him. He was he was the center of attention. I, I don't know. It, it goes on and on. It just seems like he was the ultimate guy, mm-hmm. and I don't know that I'll ever be the, the guy that they talked that he was. But mm-hmm. I, I just hope that um, maybe I have enough in me that I, I'll I'll be a good person, just like he was. And people think good of me, but I don't know. I've never heard one person say a bad a, a bad thing about him or him him not having any fun or enjoying life. So I'm just thankful to I guess get to be a son, really. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's terrible that you never got to meet him. No, but yeah, but I mean, I it's, mean, it's, it's, a cool it's story. life, and, and life goes on, and like you say, you just got to believe and, and keep moving forward and know everything happens for a reason. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, okay, let's talk about what was it like qualifying for your first NFR? Man, it was a dream come true, of course. Every little kid grows up. Mm-hmm. I mean, just hoping and praying and <laughs> wanting to be there so bad, and then, I mean, then it just comes into reality. I, I went out my first year and didn't have hardly any luck. I, my horse was terrible. I, mm-hmm. I had a lot to learn. I'd, I'd grown up my whole life, and I'm making the NFR the first year I go. And uh, I got slapped in the face the first year and then uh, go out there the next year. And the winter was great. I got to rodeo with Hanchi and mm-hmm. and uh, Cliff Cooper, and it was just like, man, I belong out here, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I went to win and had a great fourth. And then, of course, every season has a little rocky point in it, and I uh, that it didn't slow us down much and then show up to the finals and it's like holy cow it's it's this is what this is and it, it was everything i ever dreamed of too it wasn't like it was a letdown it was unbelievable and, um that's 
me saying that, I wish the little kids would realize, hey, it really does mean something. Like, it's it's awesome. It is the pinnacle of it. So, I don't know. It's, like I say, it's a dream come true. Again, thank you all for listening. Go ahead. If you liked any of these clips, you can find them all on the SCORE podcast. Go back to which seasons I told you about. Listen anywhere podcasts are at. This is not goodbye. This is I'll see you down the road. I'm Caitlin Gustav, the former host of the Short Score Podcast, signing off.